2: Well, today I am going to be taking you up to the skies, actually, literally, and actually, it's my guest who's going to be doing that, literally. Um, this, you know, this is what we all need. I think my guest is Janine Shepard, and Janine, we have to clone you. The more I was finding out about you on your website and your, uh, just you know, I was looking, all, googling you all over. Um, the more the more impressed and the more amazed and the more I kept thinking how this is what the world needs. Um, you, you, you need to find a television station or a radio station where you can be
3: all Janine all the time. <laughs> because, oh, thank you. I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, really, because especially these days, you know, with all the... Problems that there are in the world and all people kind of Mm -hmm. feeling down and God, you know, folks, if you've been feeling sorry for yourself or if you've been thinking that you have a problem that you can't overcome and, you know, you're in this kind of uh, dark spot, well, wait till you hear this. (laughs) There is nothing, I am sure, that you are dealing with that compares to what Janine Shepard has dealt with and, um, and how she has come out not only uh, come out the other side, not the same, but um, a million times doing so much more even than she was set to do. All <laughs> set to do. Although, quite frankly, Janine, you know, um, I think that from the time—and this is what, where I want to start with you—from um, the time you were born, I think from your childhood, clearly there was this this uh, this push, this perseverance that would have carried you into these heights wherever, whatever would have happened, you know, in the beginning of your life. I just want to mention, um, Janine has written five books, and we'll, t- I'll mention all of them, but her latest one in particular, they're all memoirs, and her latest one in particular is called Defiant, A Broken Body is Not a Broken Person.
3: So welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me, Carol. I'm just thrilled to be here.
2: Well, now, um... Janine's story is well. What are you? just, How yeah, about this? If you could just give sort of a little <laughs> synopsis, and then and then we'll start back at the beginning. How's that? I mean, you'd be better giving the synopsis than I would, even though I've read
3: all about it. So go ahead. <laughs> okay. Well, um, it is a is a big it's a big story. So I I'll try to keep the. Um, well, I mean, just the, I'll, I'll start the what I call, point. Yeah. Just a yeah, I'll call from what on. I call, it's not often in, yeah, it's not often in life you can sort of actually pinpoint, you know, an exact place, an exact moment that your life mm. changed forever, which is exactly what I can do. And so, you know, I was a, an athlete, i had been an athlete all my life, training for the uh, Winter Olympics. I was an Australian, I'm Australian, you can tell from my accent, a cross-country skier. And I was uh, headed for the 88 Winter Olympics in Calgary. I was on a training bike ride with my teammates. Riding from Sydney to the Blue Mountains, and it was about a six-hour ride. Uh, Five and a half hours into the ride, I just remember, look, you know, getting off my bike, riding up the hill, looking up, seeing the sun shining in my face, and then everything went black. So, I'm filling in the pieces from what people tell me because I, you know, I have no recollection of the accident. And which is called post-traumatic amnesia, but the reason is I've actually left my body. So um, I extensive, had extensive and life-threatening injuries. I broke my neck and my back. Wait,
2: well, well, okay, um, no, six, let's stop there because I want you to be able to talk about everything in greater detail, but I was just giving sort of a, yeah. a little ma- bit of a map for people. Now, let's yeah. start with, yeah. and, and the, <laughs> the rest of that story is literally um, uh, escalating ever upward, even though she almost died. Um, so let's start with, with, your, uh, I, I have read that you, um, were an athletics champion as a child, winning several national titles by the age of 10. So I'm really interested in what happened in those first 10 years, because that's where, you know, we're going to talk, of course, about how you made this amazing recovery and went ever higher and so on, but, but the, the fuel for that, the ability for that, um, the seeds were sown really in your first 10 years. So tell us, tell us where you think all of this came from.
3: Well, that's a really interesting question. <laughs> uh, you know, I was the youngest of three and I think being the youngest in a family sort of gives you that, um, you know, you always have to fight for everything, don't you? When you're the youngest, I think mm-hmm. um, that came, that, that was sort of ingrained in, in my personality as well. And I also started, you know, my parents didn't have a lot of money. We came from a very, um, you know, sort of, it wasn't a struggling um, lifestyle, but we didn't have a lot. So we started, I started, I was put into little athletics and, and we did that because it was, um, you know, I was athletic, obviously, and it was an endeavor that didn't cost a lot of money for my parents. So I started with athletics and I guess, you know, I always had this, um, you know this drive to sort of prove myself, and you know I'm not I'm not really sure where that came from, but I know that I had it. I always wanted to, you know, I you know I had I wanted to win. I wanted to see how good I could get, and you know I I, I actually talk about my philosophy of loving the hills, and when I went out training, I, I made an early discovery, and that's when I went out with my athletic group that trained together whenever we got to the hills and the really difficult, challenging parts, everyone would complain about it. And I learned very early on that if I could actually embrace those difficult, you know, parts of the training, then I had an advantage. And so I always, every time I got to the challenging parts of a training session, and everyone would sort of back off and complain and try to get out of it. I would just push even harder. And, you know, I discovered pretty early on that it gave me a great advantage. It made me physically strong, and it also made me mentally tough. And I I think it formed this philosophy that I have in life of loving the hills. Whenever I come to a challenge, I always look back on that. I'm very big on modeling and looking at, you know, what has worked before in my life. So it earned me a nickname of Janine the Machine, which perhaps might not sound flattering, (laughs) but for an athlete, you know, I took that as a compliment. And so I, you know, became really mentally tough. well, what, I what sports now.
2: What, what sports did you um participate in in your youngest years like like what were the titles in by the age of 10 what sports
3: were they in well, by the age of ten, I well, I started off as a sprinter actually, and so I'd won national and and a state and national titles in sprinting, and then from there I did you know all of the track and field events, and eventually actually got into race walking as well, and I loved that. So, all basically all of the track and field events, and and I played also field events like um, uh, net netball, which I know you don't play here in the USA, but uh, softball, netball, and and you know, all of the team events. But then I got into uh, running and, of course, by a teenager, then I would got into running and triathlons and other sports and eventually into, into skiing. Uh-huh. So, but I really think that it was that early yeah. grounding in track and field that gave me a yeah. lot of the quality that would, you know, serve me later on in life.
2: Yes. Yeah. Did um, did you have a sibling that you felt competitive? I mean, I know you were saying as the youngest. Yes, you do have to kind of fight for things. But like, <laughs> was there a sibling, or was there a parent, was there somebody that you, um, you know, were felt com- particularly competitive with?
3: There was no one that I felt competitive with, um, but I did have. I think being the youngest, my father always wanted a. Son, And so I think I was the boy, you know, that he always wanted, the tomboy. Mm. And so he really, encor- really encouraged me to be, you know, an outdoors girl and to compete. And, um, and my parents were wonderful. They uh, supported me. Didn't matter what sport I wanted to do, they would take me there. They would, ta- you know, training. I mean, it it was every day, it was every weekend, it was my entire life. So I was mm. always encouraged. I, you know, I didn't feel that my sisters were, um, you know, competition to me at all. But I was just naturally a very driven little girl. Hmm. Okay.
2: Well, that kind of explains it. Um, so okay. So <laughs> or, then, or would top you like?
3: Should I say? <laughs> what did you say? or I was very much a tomboy.
2: Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, it's interesting because as you say that, um, I think about how devastating the accident must have been, particularly for your father, feeling that he was the one who, you know, encouraged you in all of this. But let's not, I don't mean to jump ahead. Um, I guess we could go back to, to that day. Uh, well, I do want to say, so you were training, you, you were in fact expected to be um, Australia's hope for a gold medal in this 1988 Olympics, correct?
3: Well, yeah, well, you know, nobody's a uh, hope for a gold medal, but I certainly believed and thought I could get a medal. I mean, I, I, so much so that um, you know, I, my whole life my training, I had the perfect, physiologically speaking, the perfect build body. Um, aerobic capacity for cross country skiing, and of course, the right mentality, which is you know it was it 's the toughest aerobic event in the world, so it was as if the stars were aligning. And I had actually been invited by the Canadian ski team coach to join up with their team. At the time, the Canadian coach, Marty Hall, had said to me, you know, I really, I believe in you. I think you can do this. And I just had this unwavering self-belief that I could do it too. And, you know, so the stars were aligning. I had made plans to join up with the Canadian team in the lead up to the Olympics. And I was on top of the world, not just every athlete has a goal of, getting to the Olympics, but to really show the world that an Aussie could ski, and I was just determined, as I said, unwavering self-belief that this was going to happen, and I was going Uh to do something that no Australian had ever done before.
2: Hmm. Okay, so take us back to that day um, in a little more detail than what you started to describe before.
3: This was nineteen. Well, the interesting thing is that... Yep. The interesting um, thing about that day, uh, Carol, is that, you know, I actually almost didn't go on the ride because I was uh, so tired. I had exercise menorrhea which, as you know, from a lot of endurance female athletes get from overtraining. So I hadn't had a period for a few months. I'd been to the doctor. I'd had a blood test. And I knew I'd been overtraining, but a friend of mine had said he was coming up for the ride and all of my teammates were going. So, I again, as I always did, I pushed myself and I said, I'm going on this ride, this six-hour, very grueling ride. And I just remember feeling tired, but saying goodbye to mom. And and my last words were, "I'll see you this, you know, tonight, mm. early tonight." And and then, you know, riding up this hill, thinking I'm almost there. And and then and then nothing. And of course, I'd been hit by a speeding truck. And now, in in
2: a number of interviews, and and you mentioned it here too. Um, You talk about how right before the truck hit you, you were looking up to the sun. Um, Mm. Do you? What do you make of that? Like, I mean, the truck hit you from behind. Is that right?
3: Yes, he did.
2: So, I mean, so I guess you wouldn't have. I mean, do you wonder, like, whether it was because whether looking up to the sun had anything to do with you getting hit, or?
3: Well, what I know now is that the road that I was on called Boddington Hill, it's a very steep hill. In fact, I just went back to Australia and went back to the scene of the the accident for the first time. Hmm. It's a notorious hill. And at that time of the afternoon, it was about 3.30 in the afternoon. uh, The sun invariably shines down and and causes drivers, you know, has a blinding effect on on drivers heading up the hill. Hmm. I was in brightly colored clothes on the side doing everything right. He was speeding and he obviously, I mean, it, you know, it was an accident. He he just didn't see me, and he, he just ran into the back of me.
2: I mean, you know, what, what what strikes me is how that was sort of a, a pinnacle moment, how you must have felt, even though you were tired, you must have, I mean, you had this whole exciting Olympics ahead of you. And so in a way, like looking up to the sun, it was like, you know, uh, that everything was, you were on the top of the world, kind of, you know, I mean, besides being on the hill, um,
3: yeah. y- you
2: know, and so like in one moment, it was the top of the world, and then the next moment, it was the total
3: crash. Yeah, yeah it, it was, I'm mean, so... <laughs> That's a great way to look at it. But it was—I mean—it went from one extreme to the other. I had everything going for me. I had made plans, as I said, to join up with the Canadian team, and my one focus was the Olympics. That was it, and and then that moment changed my life forever. Because, yeah, you know, sometimes—I mean, I have
2: had the experience, and uh, maybe you have had it also in in less uh, dramatic ways. That sometimes when when people When everything seems to be going so perfectly, uh, sometimes just in life, you know, that all of a sudden there is kind of a crash coming down. Do
3: you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I, I can see that. And, of course... I had no, looking back now, I think, well, you know, maybe I, maybe I shouldn't have gone on the ride. Maybe I was tired and I should have listened to my body. But really, I, I've tried to think about that and tried to analyze the accident and the day in depth many, many times. And I've realized that it, the whys don't matter anymore. It, right. It just, it doesn't matter. It's, you know, I got to the point where I realized it doesn't matter why I can pull it apart and try to analyze the day, the accident, should I have gone and it, it happened. And so, what's important to me is okay, so now what? <laughs> yes.
2: So, okay, so tell us you went from this bright, brightest spot in your life, so to speak, to the dark, literally the darkest moment, and you woke up in the hospital. So, take, tell, take us from there. Mm.
3: Well, let me say to go back and say, you know, for those listening, you know, I had this body that was, you know, of an elite athlete. I was strong. I had, you know, if if I hadn't been as physically um, fit as I'd been, there's no way I would have survived the accident in the first place. So I spent the first 10 days in what I call um, my death experience. I know people talk about near death, but, I mean, I had left my body, so I think it's more accurate to say it's my death experience. And during that time, I remember... And people do ask me a lot about this. It took me a long time to understand this experience. And even now, I don't you know, fully understand it. But I had an awareness of being out of my body. I also had an awareness of being able to see my body and know that that body was broken. I also wasn't alone in this experience. And I'm very conscious of the fact that I was given a choice. I didn't have to go back. And if I did go back, it would be to a broken body that would no longer serve me as an athlete. And quite frankly, I, I didn't want to go back. And I, I didn't know why I couldn't let go. I just couldn't. As much as I wanted to let go, I couldn't. And after 10 days, I did come back to my body. And it was to, to a sense of, I guess, confusion and bewilderment. Why am I back here? And also excruciating pain. So... For those 10 days that I was what I call in, in between dimensions and in intensive care, uh, the doctors were fighting to keep me alive. I'd lost five liters of blood. So they were pumping blood into my body. I was losing it. And they told my parents, we can't do anything else. Just prepare for the worst. Well, I think we need to,
2: uh, to stop there. We have to take a break. My guest is Janine Shepard. We are at the beginning, essentially, of her journey Um, Her latest book is Defiant, A Broken Body is Not a Broken Person, and you will be hearing all about that. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
0: Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
2: And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest today is Janine Shepard. She is uh, an amazing woman. Her latest book is called Defiant, A Broken Body is Not a Broken Person. And we are just, uh, we've... (laughs) We've kind of taken her up to the point uh, of where her life, the the turning point in her life and now we're going to be hearing how this woman, tell us um, what you were saying about how you decided to come back and tell us why you decided to come back into your body.
3: Well, I think I decided to come back because looking back now, I know why. It's because, you know, my body was the thing that really defined my life and, you know, this was the greatest, uh, I guess, um, challenge for me was to, to lose the thing that I thought defined who I was. So in terms of, you know, pushing me onto the path of awakening and the spiritual journey, this was the one thing that was going to be the most powerful way that I was going to get on it. When mm. I did wake up, though, in hospital... I, you know, I wasn't sure. I know that my parents were sitting by my bedside the whole time, holding my hand, um, talking to me. I didn't really have an awareness of that. I just had awareness of my own struggle and where I was. So I really think in many ways that was my lifeline as well. And I think that really kept me attached to my body.
2: mm. And so, um, tell us about all the things that the, when you when you did wake up, all the things that you found out had happened to your body.:
3: Well, you know I, at first they the pain was overwhelming. I couldn't take in a lot and, and, and I knew they I, they kept telling me that I'd broken my my back and, you know, I was trying to register what that meant, you know, I knew people didn't walk again when they broke their backs, but that that wasn't me, that's the sort of thing that happens to someone else, and, you know, gradually they told my parents, don't tell her anything because she'll give up, mm-hmm. and so, I, you know, they sort of drip fed me information, it was, you know, they first told me I've broken my back, and then I'd broken it in many places, and then, oh, you've broken your neck too, and then you've mm-hmm. broken this, and that, and the list of injuries just went on, and on, and on, and just when they thought I was strong enough to handle a little bit more, they'd feed me a little bit more information, and and then I can remember, you know, one day the the doctor said, "We're going to just prick your legs and tell tell me when you can feel this." And I can remember he was pricking my legs, and 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 I couldn't feel anything, and and I realised that this was probably a lot more serious than I thought. And that's when they said they were going to ha- you know going to have to operate. And I mean, it, it's like. It's like a nightmare. You honestly think that this can't be happening. I mean, if I say to people, if you can imagine getting in your car, going to work, and then waking up and you're paralyzed in a spinal ward, it's most people's worst nightmare. And, and for an athlete on their way to the Olympics, it was absolutely my worst nightmare. And I kept thinking, I'll just close my eyes and go to sleep, and maybe I'll just wake up at home, And and, and it didn't happen. <laughs>
2: Yes, and also you had lost a lot of blood, um, which was, you know, the doctor. I guess eventually told you that that would have been uh, enough to kill you if you hadn't broken any bones.
3: Yeah, at first the broken bones weren't even a consideration. You know, that, that didn't really matter. It was the blood loss. I was, in, you know, bleeding internally. They couldn't. They, they didn't know where. They couldn't stop it, and and that was the thing that was going to kill me early on. And then after that, it was okay. The blood loss has stopped after ten days and now we're we're going to concentrate on the paralysis because I had no movement in my legs. And my whole body was bruised black and and blue from where the truck had hit me. So I was lying on a torso that was, you know, bruised and swollen and with all the other broken bones on a thin, hard spinal bed. It was just excruciatingly painful. Mm. Mm.
2: So, okay. Um, and And then what?
3: Well, um, they we did. I had surgery on my back. They uh, the neck break was simple. The back break L one was a a comminuted fracture, as you know, it it was completely crushed. So they went in. They said, if we don't operate, you know, she will be in a wheelchair for the rest of her life. But even choosing, you know, spinal surgery like this has um, tremendous risk. So we, we went for the surgery and they uh, orthopedic surgeon, neurosurgeon, they sort of cut halfway around my body and I had extensive spinal surgery. I had what's called an anterior decompression laminectomy and they kicked all the bone that had lodged in my spinal cord. They took out two of my broken ribs and they, they rebuilt my back and And I remember waking up and in excruciating pain with a big drain coming out of my side and and, and, and being told that the operation was a success and... At that point, after the surgery, I can laugh about it now, but I had a little bit of movement in one of my, one of my big toes, the big toe on my right foot, and I thought, oh, great, because I'm going to the Olympics. Yeah. <laughs> and I think they must have thought, oh, my gosh, you know, we're going to have to break this. <laughs> and, of course, you know, that, that's when the rehab doctor said to me, look, you know, we're very happy with the surgery, but you know, these, these injuries are permanent and you will never be able to do the things you did before. And it was devastating, devastating. And they didn't know. They said, I had no feeling from the waist down. They said, at most, I might get 20% return. They said, I'd have to use a catheter for the rest of my life. And I didn't even even know what that was. I thought, what are Uh, they talking about? uh, And then they said, you know, that I possibly, they hoped that I might, get the use back of my legs enough to walk with the calipers on my legs and a walking frame and that's probably the best I could hope for and so I spent six months uh, flat on my back almost six months in the spinal ward um, with a neck brace around my neck as well and just looking straight up at the ceiling and when I did leave it was in a wheelchair and a plaster body cast attached to a catheter bottle and that, that's my, everything about my life had changed.
2: Yes, and you said uh, and a nurse told you that when you get home, you're going to become depressed mm-hmm. because when you're in the hospital, other people, the people in your ward have similar kinds of injuries, but when you get home and see you know, that the world has gone on, that it's going to be depressing, and indeed, you did get depressed, but apparently not for very long, so what happened then? <laughs>
3: Yeah, I did. I, you know, I got home. At first, I thought, no, I'm. Gonna, I, I want to learn to walk again. I'm getting my life back. And I really thought, no, they're wrong. That you know, I'm. Of course, I'm going to get back to skiing. And, and of course, I got home and I realized that they were right. And it, it hit me being home in my bedroom and seeing all the reminders of my old life and all of my mm. friends had gone off and they were skiing and, you know, I was home alone and, you know, there were there were moments in my life that were. As in much as I, I, you know, tried to stay really positive, there were moments that were were shattering for me. And for a woman, you know, for my sense of being a woman was was um, taken from me in a very cruel way. Firstly, I had to learn to use a catheter, which can be is was humiliating and exhausting. And I thought to myself, I'm never going to be able to go out again if I can't mm-hmm. get a handle on this. And then, of course, I remember being wheeled into a doctor's office and him saying to me, well, you know, I think we need to talk about your sex life. And I was taken aback and I remember saying, well, you know, isn't there a female I can talk to? And he said, well, no. Mm. Um, you know, it's, I know this is embarrassing, Janine, but it's something all spinal patients have to deal with. And uh, he actually said this. He said, you know, you'll never have the big O again. Uh. And uh. I sat there holding back tears in my wheelchair and I remember going home that night and there's something about the spinal ward that you know there was always activity and things happening but suddenly I was in my room alone at night and the silence was deafening and his words rang in my ear and I thought to myself what else can I lose you know I've lost everything that I valued and now he's telling me I've lost my sense of you know being a woman and I can remember that night thinking, I didn't, I, I, don't want to be here. I wish I hadn't chosen to come back and mm. thinking of ways I could get out of it. And I can remember pulling myself off my bed in my plaster body cast and sobbing alone in my room. And I can remember saying, just crying out into the darkness and saying, you know, God, show me a way out of this or show me a way through this. And... I, t- I say to people, that was rock bottom for me. That was, I, I don't think I could have been any lower than I was that night. Mm-hmm. And, and you were how old? And there's a tremendous, yeah, I was 24. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I felt that I'd lost everything, every, everything. And the gift in that is that, you know, when you're at rock bottom, there is absolutely nowhere to hide. And you get a very good look at who you are. And I realized that if I was going to get through this, then I had to let go of my life as I knew it. And that night I did. I, I just, I let go. I let go of my dreams of going to the Olympics. My dr- you know, my idea of me being an athlete. Um, my idea that my body was my strength. I decided that I was letting go of my Old friends, not cutting them off, but just I had made the decision that I had to find a way out of this. And I thought that I had something to prove to my doctors, but really, looking back now, I actually had something to prove to myself. Mm-hmm. And it was only in that letting go that I found my way through and began the healing journey. That moment changed my, you know, that decision and that letting go changed my life.
2: Mm. And then was it the next day that you saw the airplane?
3: No, it was uh, probably a few weeks later, but it was, you know, in my wheelchair and my plaster cast. You know, I'd really made that... I I also went through a lot of what you would call probably survivor guilt in the way that, you know, I felt responsible. I I felt a lot of anger towards the, the man that had run me over. I felt responsible for what my parents had been going through. And so I sort of felt that... Come on, you've got to, you know, you've got to do this for for mum and dad as well and and you've got to find something. So I I sort of began this journey of, okay, well, what can I do? And it was as if I was now seeing the world with completely different eyes. And I was outside and an airplane flew over and in the most unlikely moment I looked up and thought, okay, well, I can't walk, but maybe I can fly. (laughs) And it was crazy. Everyone thought it was crazy. Mm Mum didn't take me seriously. Um, And that was it. It was the moment that changed my life. And uh, weeks after that, covered in a plaster body cast in a pair of baggy overalls that Mum had bought me and a friend had come out to my place to visit. They drove me out to the local airport and they carried me into the flying school. And they took me down onto the tarmac, put me in a light aeroplane and that was it it was as if something inside me was ignited um and there was no looking back you know i th- the instructor actually took me up i, I couldn't use my legs but i c- could use my hands so he let me fly the airplane and it was just this incredible sense of joy and freedom you- if you can even imagine lying paralyzed in a spinal ward and then suddenly Mm, flying an aeroplane. Mm, mm. You know, I was like, okay, so that doctor said I wouldn't be able to do the things I did before. I'll show you. <laughs>
2: uh-huh. I'm going to do something
3: extraordinary. And I think that was, you know, as I said, I thought I was proving something to them, but actually I was proving something to myself. And that was that, you know, I had the the strength, um, the defiant human spirit, I call it, to actually reinvent my life, which is what I did. Wow. Well. <laughs> Um,
2: yeah, that was quite, it was quite something for your parents to go along with this, first of all, you know, rather than being scared that there's something, mm. that this is just not realistic and, you know, you should think more realistically, more practically, um, and then also for the school to do it, uh, they, they kind of had to take a leap of faith, um, but, and then, so... The, and then the story goes on that Janine didn't just learn how to fly a plane, but she um, I, I, she became ultimately she became a an instructor um, of uh, well you you tell the different <laughs> steps. <laughs>
3: Well, you're right about the school. I mean, at first, they honestly thought that they wouldn't see me again. They thought, oh, she's just come out for this one fun flight, joy flight, <laughs> and that's it. And and I guess, um, you know, for me, looking back now, I can see what I needed to do was, you, you know, reset and have some goals. And I know that one of the things about coming out of, you know, suffering um, an accident or trauma like this is it's so easy to just sit at home and life passes by and um, you lose all sense of hope. And for me, being able to you know have a reason to get out of bed in the morning have a goal gave me a sense of hope it gave me a sense of direction and and you know I say flying gave me my life back so you know that was it I sort of went home got my diary out ripped the last page out and started to you know started an exercise routine which I can tell you it wasn't it wasn't very much at that stage I could mum, helped me lie on the ground I could probably lift a leg, maybe one inch off the ground and that was it. I, but I was so focused and, and so dedicated to that and I filled my diary in every day. And while I was learning to, to walk again, I was also being driven out to the flying school and, and flying. Eventually, I did pass a medical that's a long story too. And, uh, you know, I continued to fly. I got what's called my private pilot's license. Uh, then I learned to navigate and I actually flew an airplane around Australia. And then I went on and I got my instrument rating, my night rating, my commercial um, pilot's license and my instructor rating. And um, But it didn't stop there. Uh, then I saw some little airplanes flying around and they were the aerobatic school and I thought, hmm, that, that would be fun. And again, I... You know, I don't have a lot of strength in my legs, but um, you know, I just I figured that I'd find out sooner or later whether I'd be able to do it, and I've had to adjust everything I do in my life. So I found a way around that too, and I became an aerobatic pilot and then an aerobatics flying instructor, and then then I found myself uh, at the the same uh, aerodrome where I'd gone for that first flight and teaching people how to fly upside down in a roundabout. Eighteen months after I'd left the spinal ward. Wow, wow, that
2: that is <laughs> that is just amazing. You know, I hadn't really thought about that. That um, in order to pass the physical for to get a license, a pilot's license, that you would have had, I guess, to have some proficiency uh, in walking, right? Than what you had, because even yeah. though, because you do, ha- even though you used your hands, I guess,
3: th- did
2: they want? I mean, was there some kind of? I would imagine there would be some kind of a requirement. About how you could have to use your feet
3: (laughs) too. Well, you'd hope so, wouldn't you? (laughs) Yes. Um, You know, well, look, there are pilots that fly in in wheelchairs. I didn't know anything about flying at the time. I knew nothing. I'd never wanted to fly in my life. But as I said, it it gave me my life back. I'd been exercising a lot. You know, I'd convinced... uh, I guess I was really fortunate that the doctor that was doing my pilot's medical was so enthusiastic. He was, as they often are, these doctors that uh, contest for pilot's medicals, they just want everyone to fly because they're so passionate (laughs) about it themselves. So he had said to me, you know. No, go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, so he had said to me, you know, if you can get a letter from your surgeon, we'll recommend we pass you. You know, so it took, you know, it took a while. It took months and months of me just continuously. Mum used to drive me to the pool. I swam every day. I did exercises every day. And, you know, I managed to, um, you know, walk in a way that even though I had quite a significant limp, you know it was enough to I, I guess convince him that i'd be able to operate uh-huh. the rudder pedals of the airplane
1: and so i had enough it,
3: strength in in my quads to be able to push in a way that could sort of compensate and and get some pressure on the pedals
2: uh-huh so so really that that was um also motivation to get you to learn to walk better that was amazing well we do need to take another break my guest is Janine Shepard her Uh, most recent book is called Defiant A Broken Body Is Not a Broken Person. We will be right back with Janine. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
0: Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
2: And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest is Janine Shepard, the amazing Janine Shepard, who I hope by now has made all of you feel Embarrassed <laughs> for the things that you're whining about when look, look at how uh, embarrassed but then inspired, um, at what she was able to do. I want to make sure that I mention her previous books, um, which I assume Janine were kind of, um, they, her first book was in 1995 called Never Tell Me Never. That kind of, that title sort of makes sense. Dare to Fly mm-hmm. in 1998. Reaching for the Stars also in 1998. On My Own Two Feet, 2007, and The Gift of Acceptance in 2012. And then the one, of course, that we're talking about uh, that we have mentioned so far, Defiant, a Broken Body is Not a Broken Person. Um, I, I take it that these uh, books have, have talked about your, um, sort of the progression of your life, you know, the, the, what, you, what you had accomplished at the time that, that a particular book came out. Is that right?
3: yeah I think the difference between the you know the books that i 've written in the past and and my new book Defiant is that the, the earlier books well obviously I wrote at a much younger age and they they really explained what I went through whereas this book is you know as i 'm hopefully older and a little wiser i hope <laughs> explain you know that it, it sort of peels back the layers and and talks more about not just what happened but how I felt about what happened and how I moved you know through that layered healing journey um uh-huh. And, and so it's, I think, you know, a much, a much deeper and, and more profound book than the others.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And also you've, um, you had a movie made out of the first, a television movie, right, made out of the first one?
3: That's right, yeah, called Never Tell Me Never, and that's an Australian movie, which is still playing and stars a lot of really well-known Australian actors. Uh-huh.
2: Um... <laughs> I think we need I think there should be a new one made to to catch up to today. Um because I do want to mention I want to make sure that you know Janine's life has has obviously changed but um besides flying and so on her main uh, tell me tell me if I'm saying this correctly but her main uh what she mainly does today besides write books and do interviews is she is a an international speaker and on her website There is an example. There are some clips from television shows where she's been interviewed and so on. But um, there's an example of this wonderful talk that you gave, uh, where everybody in the audience was just so exhilarated just listening. I mean, basically saying what you've been saying today. But um, you know, this is such an important message for people to hear because it just shows that that what you've been saying that when you're the life that you dreamed of is crushed, and you think you have nothing mm-hmm. there's you feel like everything has been taken away. the ability to to create a new life and to do something which you know yes it would have been wonderful if you had won <laughs> a gold medal or any kind of medal for Australia. but what you're doing today is so much more wonderful because you're touching so many more lives and helping people to um, to realize that they should persevere more to overcome things that they have in life, problems that they uh, came across, obstacles and accidents and various um, catastrophes that happen.
3: Well, that's right, and there are many, many forms of loss, and I think that's where this book is different is that, you know, it's not. I mean, a lot of people that uh, in Australia, for example, know of my accident but may not have known about all the subsequent losses that I've faced in my life. I, I say not everyone's, you know, been hit by a truck, but, you know, I've also been through, you know, divorce and single parenting and, and financial loss and all these things that, for me... Um, has given a lot of depth in in my life and and given me reason to sort of look back and and evaluate what's important. And I guess the talk that you're um, mentioning here is the TED talk that I gave, which is called A Broken Body is Not a Broken Person. And, you know, I talk mainly about, um, about my accident there, but really it's about, you know, having the ability to let go of the life we think we were supposed to have and really opening ourselves up to you know other possibilities for life and and the gifts that that brings.
2: And now, um, being respectful of uh, not being too personal, as I have want to do. That is not being yeah. <laughs> not not want to be respectful, but want to be personal. Um, yeah. uh, what was that like dating? And how did you meet your husband? And and you know after this accident, what what? And after the doctor had. Sort of spoken to you so brutally, um, what was that like, trying to get back into that aspect of your life?
3: Oh, it was really challenging you know i It took a lot of courage to be able to, to sort of open myself to, up to being in a relationship and and of course, I said that I probably wouldn't be able to have children, so you know, I did eventually get married and uh, they, you know, don't listen to everything the doctors tell you, I say, because yes. I went on and I, you know, I had three beautiful children and got to the point in my life where I thought, wow, you know, I've had my accident and, you know, now it's all going to be, you know, easy. I've, I, um, you know, this is the fairy tale and it didn't quite happen like that. Do
2: you think, um, and was this someone who, how soon after your accident did you meet your husband, the man who became your husband?
3: Yeah. Um well I pr- I think I was married in 5 years after my accident. So you know it was um uh, you know, I was very much into flying at that stage, so I you know had it was a completely different life for me i didn 't really keep in contact very closely with my athletic friends um, because I really needed to start a new life. so I spent every single day of my life out at the flying school teaching people how to fly and ended up marrying a fellow pilot that I worked with, and as I said, had three children and and thought well um, you know, I've been through the really big things, so and 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 that's and that's it. But it wasn't it wasn't to be. And in fact, I have more more equally challenging um, things that were you know about to face me in the future.
2: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um. Yes. Then, but, 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 I mean, I'm just I'm just thinking of all the things that there's there's first of all the. Um, the physical issues. Then there's the notoriety. You know, the, well, you were so famous before the accident, and, and then you became, I presume, even more famous, right? Um, with you know, everybody knew about your recovery and so on, or what you were doing. Um, mm. So there was that to deal with, and then um, you know, I'm sure there were lots of lots of uh, lots of challenges to, to deal with in in a relationship, and and uh, and, and of course, then the divorce. But and so now you're. Is it true that <laughs> so you're living
3: in Wyoming? You've moved to the state. I know it's it's crazy. Once again, I you know I have to say that there was a moment you know I, after I gave my TED talk in uh, around the end of 2012. I you know I've always had a lot of letters and people write to me with their sharing their, their journeys and their challenges, and I remember sitting at at my computer and opening up this one particular email this day, and it was from a man in India. And he wrote to me and he said, um, you know, I've had an ailment for 17 years, and it was so challenging that I was considering suicide. He said, but I saw your TED Talk today. And he said, and my life starts now. Hmm. And I thought to my, you know, I mean, it was, (laughs) I just realized that, you know, I can't stop doing what I'm doing. What I love doing is being able to um, share my story and connect with people. And I needed to, once again, um, reinvent my life after um, this devastating period of my life of separation and single parenting. So I made the decision to, as as you would, just pack up and move to the other side of the world. (laughs) And, you know, I love doing things that people say you'll never do.
2: Hmm. Someone said,
3: "No, you'll never get you'll, you'll never be able to, you know, sort of get a book deal in America and make it over there." So I thought, "Okay, <laughs> well, I better go and, and and see what's possible." So I did. I moved here and ended up getting um, being signed to write this latest book, Defiant. And as it turns out, um, in extraordinary circumstances again, I at, you know, I'm now living in a cabin in Wyoming, which is where I spent the last couple of years writing this book, and, and leading an extraordinary life here. Oh, wow. <laughs> and your children are how old now? Well, my children are 19, 22, and 25, and amazing. In fact, my middle daughter went on, and um, she's six months off becoming a doctor as well. So I thought, I, need, I needed my own doctor, see? <laughs> <laughs> huh.
2: Well, I'm sure she's a much more uh, compassionate one <laughs> than the one that you that talked to you about uh, what you weren't going to be able to do. Um, so, oh, we hope
3: so. So, uh, so y- y-
2: y- when did you move to the United States?
3: I moved here three years ago, and it's it's been just a remarkable journey. I've just um, I've I've loved every moment of it. And, and why Wyoming? Um, How did that, you pick Wyoming? Oh, well, I- uh, well, Wyoming picked me. <laughs> yeah, I ended up uh, falling in love and moving to Wyoming. Oh my! God.
2: <laughs> you left out that I part know. of the story. Oh, that's, a, that's... <laughs>
3: well. Yeah, I, I know he's very private, so I couldn't put that in the end of the book. Maybe that's in the next one. So <laughs> I did. I met a remarkable, a remarkable man who's my soulmate, and um, living in a house surrounded by bears and moose, and, and I, it's, it's extraordinary. I pinched myself. In fact, the, you know, I'm living back at the mountains, not far from Jackson Hole, actually. So, you know, my journey started, I guess, in the mountains, and, and mm. here I am. I find myself back here again, surrounded by snow in the mountains. Mm, mm, wow. And, yes,
2: and, you know, I saw um, the pictures of the video of you uh, skiing again i mean i couldn't believe that obviously it's not the same but i mean i couldn't believe that you were even able to you not only got on skis but from what i saw anyway in the little clip um you were it was cross-country skiing that you were actually doing again was that you or was that
1: <laughs> was that someone well, pretending I, I to be
2: do...
3: you no, no, actually, well, I wasn't doing a very good job. No, you're probably thinking about, uh, 60 Minutes did a story many, many years ago in Australia. And so I did sort of get back on skis just for that, for that. Um, it's very difficult. Cross-country skiing is very, very difficult for me now because I just don't have the balance and, um, the, uh, muscles and the strength to be able to stand up on cross-country skis. But I can downhill ski, uh, to, to some extent with the boots sort of hold my legs in and I lean forward and, and I just love it. I love the fact that, you know, I can get out there and it's um, actually I brought my, my kids up skiing. They all skied and my eldest daughter actually was, you'll, you'll think this, this is a very interesting story. She became a slope style skier. So, oh, wow. you know, going over jumps and rails and she was selected to represent Australia at the Sochi Olympics. Oh, wow. And I... Thought, this is great. This is you know the the, the, the circle full circle yeah. and six weeks before six weeks before the Sochi Olympics, she was uh, in a World Cup in Aspen and she went over a jump and tore her ACL. Oh. So, but this is what's interesting about this is uh, everyone was devastated in Australia, obviously, and she came home and she was handling it really well. And I remember saying to her, her name's Annabelle, I said, Annabelle, why are you handling this so well? Why are you not devastated? And she simply looked at me and said, well, Mom, because I've been watching you my whole life.
2: Yes, yes. Oh, wow. Well, that is a perfect way to end, although quite frankly, I um, would like to go on talking to you for much longer. But let me again um, mention that, well, first of all, let me tell people where they can go to your website, which is... um, Wait a minute. <laughs> What's <Where's>, uh, <laughs> uh, dot janineshepherd.com that shouldn't be so hard. W-w-w dot j a n i n e shepherd s h e p h e r d com. and I really would recommend that you'll see these marvelous videos. I would really recommend and including of this TED talk. I would really recommend that everybody go there and look at it. Meanwhile, um again the name of the car- latest book is called Defiant A Broken Body Is Not a Broken Person. So Janine thank you so much for sharing that uh your story and yes I <laughs> I hope that finally this is this is the um you can kind of rest now in terms of you know feeling <laughs> feeling happy and um not like it has everything has to be just such a challenge all the time although god you really are a model for all of us. So thank you so much for being on the show and thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
1: Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.